Hello, TV Campfire listeners. Welcome back to another panel live from ATX presented by The Syndication Project, ATX's official foundation. This is Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, your podcast hosts. Why not? Sure. Uh, We're also co-founders and executive directors of ATX Television Festival. You may or may not know that by now. We say (laughs) it at the top of every episode. It's going to keep repeating it over and over and over. (laughs) So this next panel was inspired by one day me looking at you and just pretty much out of nowhere asking, why does TV matter? We should back up and say that this happens a lot. (laughs) Me asking random questions out of nowhere. Randomly out of the silence, start asking questions that should be like, hey, can I ask you a question? You think it's going to be like... (laughs) Can I get you a glass of water? Can you get me a glass of water? Something like very simple. And then it will be some existential crisis question. Have I ever asked a simple question? No. Uh, The problem is I don't do really well without having answers. And this one is like, it's not does TV matter? It's why does TV matter? Which is kind of a big deal. And kind of why we started the festival. Not a loaded question at all. But we had that conversation and it really sort of led to what this panel would be and what we wanted to ask some kind of important people. With the world changing so quickly and studios and networks saying very loudly that they're striving to have more diversity on and off screen, it had us asking ourselves, does this actually make a difference in the world? And for us, we believe the answer is yes. While TV should absolutely be entertaining and never be used as a teaching or preaching tool, there's just a responsibility to those in charge who are deciding what goes on air. This is moderated by Leslie Goldberg of The Hollywood Reporter, and she asked some key executives what their beliefs and the responsibility of television is, how they think it impacts society, and what they're doing to be more inclusive of all types of people. So we hope it makes you ask yourself the same question, even if you don't have the answer to it. (laughs) We're not answering questions. We're just asking them here. Yeah, it's a lot easier, Emily, to ask the questions. You've taken the easy role here. Yep. Um, Podcast host. That's what we get to do. (laughs) But without further ado, Why Does TV Matter? Presented by The Hollywood Reporter. How's everybody? I'm Leslie Goldberg. I'm the West Coast uh, TV editor at uh, this little publication called The Hollywood Reporter. Um, And I have a question for you. When was the last time that you saw yourself on TV or saw a version of yourself on TV or an issue that you're struggling with represented in a storyline? If you have or if you haven't, you kind of just answered why TV matters. Um, As Emily said, you know, at its best, television reflects the world that we live in, except when the programming doesn't. Um, That's why the current push for inclusivity on screen and in the executive suites uh, is so much more important. Like it or not, ABC's Roseanne uh, was programmed for an underserved community, the working class. Uh, Scandal's Kerry Washington was the first black lead in 40 years on a primetime drama, 40 years. Uh, Competition for inclusive actors grows every year in the pilot season and straight to series. and you know, look behind the scenes, the women and uh, stream. Uh, sorry, <laughs> competition for uh, b- you know behind the scenes, women and people of color face hurdles getting a foot in the door. Executives with decades of experience are overlooked for top jobs. Um, joining me today to discuss all that and more are TNT Exec VP Originals Sarah Aubrey. <laughs> Miramax TV President Lauren Whitney. A personal favorite, Freeform Exec VP Development, Carrie Burke. Last but certainly not least, Entertainment One Senior VP Scripted, Carolyn Newman. Thanks everybody for joining today. Um, You know, let's start with the composition of this panel for white women. You know, I spoke with Emily and the ATX organizers and they really wanted this panel to be inclusive and people either passed or were not available. Um, And let's be honest, there really isn't a large pool of inclusive development executives to pick from. Uh, To that point, last year, Sony, Fox, Hulu, all replaced straight white male executives with, wait for it, other straight white (laughs) male executives. Um, So let's start at the top. Uh, Why are more women and people of color not getting these CEO and, and president level jobs at these major outlets? (laughs) Everyone's looking at me. Carrie. (laughs) 
Um, I think we all, we can do a better job, and it's gotten better um, in the 30 years since I've been doing this. Um, it has gotten better, but we need to do a better job um, widening the funnel, I call it. You know, making more points of entry for showrunners, writers, directors, creators, but also executives. Um, and I think as a community, we focused a lot on inclusion um, and diversity um, behind the camera in, in the creative ranks, but less so in the executive ranks. Um, and I, I have this theory that, um, or an observation, I don't know if it's theory, but um, that we've discussed a little bit, which is um, particularly for women, there is something that I call, um, we work our way up and um, as, as creative executives, and in a lot of companies we get to a level which is kind of the, a level right below the CEO and president level, the executive vice president level, um, and I call it <laughs> um, the EVP ghetto. Uh, and it is, um, it is a big club um, that a lot of us are members of, and, um, and I have some theories about why, and, and others on this panel do uh, as well, and we can talk about that. Um, um, I, there was a time earlier in my career where I was an EVP at NBC, and I looked at my boss's job, Warren Littlefield at the time, and I said, ah, God, that seems hard. And he, he's doing all the stuff that I don't want to do. I get to do the creative stuff, and that's all kind of management. Um, and I don't want that. And I actually sort of self-selected out of that um, career track. And in hindsight, that was probably a mistake. And 20 years later, I would not do that again. I did at the time because I had young children and I thought, I, you know, I will be an irresponsible parent. And then I went on to see women like Nina Tassler and now Channing Dungy and, and so many women at running companies. And they are still terrific moms. Jen Salky's a great mom. Um, and they just figured out a way to do it, and they showed me that we can get to the top, and we are infinitely capable of running companies. We just have to um, put our hands up and say we want those jobs. And it's gotten better. There are more female presidents and CEOs than you know, 20, 30 years ago, but uh, we still have a lot of work to do. And I just want to add to that, because I think to not be so hard on yourself, you know, things were very different then, and I don't think it was as easy to be um, a present parent, which, you know, is important to all of us on this panel, and have those jobs. And I think that's something that is dramatically changing. And thankfully, <clears throat> you know, I feel like because of the workforce that's younger than us, um, a lot of you all who are sitting in this room, you grew up during a recession in a time when it was very clear that if you were going to put all your happiness eggs in your work basket, you were going to be sad. And so you right. kind of came up with a more well-rounded perspective about you know, work and life balance because you had to, and you bring that into the workforce. And I don't feel this same kind of pressure to deny that you have a life outside of your work. I think in the same way that, you know, I think we kind of came up that way and like we had to at times pretend like we didn't have children. I mean, honestly, and you know, not literally, but you didn't want to talk about it because you always felt maybe some judgment of, well, then you won't be available to do this or that, or you'll be discounted for that. Um, and I think, you know, a, a fact that is pretty remarkable and fun to me is that Carrie and I both have our daughters here with us right now. I think my daughter, who's five, ran away in boredom, but she is here, <laughs> and, she, and she might make a big entrance at any moment. But I mean, that that kind of in and of itself is radical to bring them to a work event where you're around your peers and say, this is my whole life. So I think... It sounds real touchy-feely, but it's not. It's one of the ways that I think we all start raising our hands more for these kinds of jobs. Yeah. Agreed. And, and I would also say what's super important to see people like you. And for me, what's really, what was quite interesting was I, I'm originally from Canada. And so I moved here only five years ago. And I was, very, you know, in Canada, you get a year of maternity leave. They hold your job. There's these things that really help you stay on the career path that I think are so important to getting women, mothers in particular, fathers, I mean, not to say that fathers can't have that too, certainly, of course they should, but having that, um, that kind of reservation, like that, that societal bonding that says, no one's gonna touch your job, you have a right to have children, you have a right to work, 
And I think that's incredibly important. I was so shocked when I came here and I was like, how many months do you get? What, what is that? Weeks? Days. Days? <laughs> what? And, it, and it's a silencing, you know, because that's just saying you're not really, it's like get it done, get it done fast, get back. And it's not really inclusive to, to um, uh, fostering, you know, uh, mothers in the workplace because it's, I don't know how you do it. I honestly don't know how you guys have done it within three months. I'm sh I mean, I could, I'm like bowing down. I may not be here today had I had to go through that. That's the truth. Yeah, yeah. It might have been Children a very different, change. a very, <laughs> but it might have been a very different story. So uh, it's something that I think we all have to be aware of. Um, anyways, that's it. But I mean, as the conversation continues to, to evolve, I mean, are, you know, as these companies look for these next round of executives that make the decisions on what's on screen, um, are, the, are men being held to these same standards? Is there more of a conversation like, oh, this is a guy, but he's the primary caretaker? Like, is he, are, are men being asked these questions about uh, availability? No. <laughs> and I would say, I'm not even sure we often get asked the question. I think people assume they know the answer mm -hmm. and keep moving. Um, if we were asked, we could probably address it in a helpful way. I mean, how, I mean, it's surprising because even in the post Me Too era that you would think that a lot of the conversation would be about, like th that the conversation isn't, that, that it's not even a conversation. It's just who's the best qualified person. So when AMC and Hulu and Fox and all these companies are looking for the lead role for these top decision makers, mm -hmm. are your phones ringing? <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yes. Um, I think it depends. I think it depends on the company. As we talked about the um, the Amazon search, in which they decidedly were looking for a female top executive, and and I think that certainly that was the first time in my career that I can remember that being a sort of out um, objective for Amazon in that but, search. But let's look at why, though. I mean, that's because right. Roy Price was pushed right. out after sexual harassment allegations. Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not applauding them for that. Yeah. Um, but I am, it was the first time I think um, I had ever remembered an executive search where the primary, primary objective was to recruit uh, a female top exec. But I think even in that, and this is also kind of interesting, I'm finding more women increasingly looking at situations like that saying, do I want that job? Because even if someone's coming to offer it to me, you know, there's a concern about what that culture is, the work that you would have to do to change that culture to make it hospitable to you um, and be family friendly. And it's kind of interesting to me also that there are women I know that were talked to about that job that were very hesitant to even interview for it. It wasn't like a calf scramble of everyone saying yes, yes. There were a lot of women that I know that are very qualified that were like, uh, I don't know if I want to mess with that, yeah. which mean, is interesting. And that's, you know, maybe without Roy Price at the helm, maybe a show like Good Girls Revolt gets a second season and is, becomes the right show at the right moment, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Carolyn. <laughs> Have anything to say about that? No. <laughs> no. no comment. No comment. <laughs> um, you know, but in a, in a larger sense, you know, is there a, a prevalent feeling in the industry that the need for inclusion in all areas of the business—on screen, directing, writing, executives—that that there's that that's a moment that's going to pass, and we'll, we'll move on to another topic, or is this a more permanent conversation? I will say that I think it's so important to have two. My takeaway from my experience again in America. <laughs> so far, is that I think it's so important to have um, two senior women in a room. And when you're the, an only senior woman in a room, it's very hard to get your voice heard um, and your perspective necessarily shared. And, and I think the more we can build out these ranks, the more we will keep the, it will not be conversation, it will become just a way of being. We can't move on yet. Because then we're going to be right back where we started, yeah. you know. And a lot of people will get, you know, have to go through these experiences again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that's also interesting too, the PTV era, we're like 500 scripted shows plus and 30 different buyers. Um, but they're saying that it's so much easier now to break in because of the demand for content. But yet, at the same time, not everyone is willing to give newcomers a shot. So how do you change that way of thinking and get more voices in the rooms where it matters? Um, 
It's a good question. I think part of it is, um, I do think that we talked about a little bit about this last night. I think the, um, the proliferation of content has created so much more opportunity. Um, uh, that said, there's more to do. And I think um, having, you know, t putting less of a premium on experience, to be honest, <laughs> um, for us as buyers, um, having it be a value to take chances on fresher, less experienced voices um, is critical. I think one of the things certainly that um, we have had to do it sort of by necessity at Freeform, um, and I inherited this practice, I, I didn't invent it, but when I got to the channel, one of the sort of our calling cards was, you can come here as a fresh voice and get a show on the air. You don't have to have tons of experience running other shows. That isn't why you know, people are, are coming to work here. They're coming here to get their shot. And so there was already a system in place where um, they were, you know, um, creating an environment of inclusivity and taking chances on people um, that I inherited and then we've just tried to amplify. So I think that's, that's one of them. Certainly, you know, newer voices can always be paired with more experienced showrunners um, in order to mount shows. But I, I think sort of placing a value and having less fear about who is doing the creating um, will be part of the answer. And you know, and Carolyn, when we were talking last week, uh, we, you mentioned uh, the challenges like in your search to find directors, and especially to have two people direct, uh, to, to have one person direct two episodes at a time, mm -hmm. and, the, and the challenges that you face in finding someone like, in, 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 and getting the new, these new, new directors a shot. Yeah, uh, you know, I, but I, we've been very fortunate recently, and we've announced a, a big, we have some pilots going, and it's very exciting, but when you um, start to look for women in particular who, um, you want to bring into that pilot process, what you start to find, especially, and again, you know, maybe it's my my cause, but you know, women who are in who are old, you know, more mature, and you want to give them Thank women you. who are all <laughs> more mature. <laughs> I put myself in that category. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But um but you know you're not, you know, spark you know, you're you've been in the business for a while and you want to give them an opportunity to Pilot, which is insane to think about, you know, an opportunity at you know midway in your career, supposedly. But when you look at a lot of mature women, you see that you know, in particular, directors they're they're called episodic directors, and and they have been given opportunity to direct episodes, but not necessarily pilots. And I think a lot of that is because they never got that chance to make that short film, and to really make or make a film, an indie budget. You know, like that's kind of what you look for for pilot directors are people who've shown their point of view without having other points of view first. And I think for more, for what's needed is to try and get these, I think women who in particular have been put more into that episodic realm, give them opportunities to show their point of view. Yeah. Um, because they probably didn't have it when they were coming up the ranks and now they're more, in, and it's not to say they couldn't, they, or they don't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's where they are. Yeah, and I mean, look at what happened with Hulu, right? They hired Reed Moreno, first-time pilot director. She directed the first two episodes of a little show called The Handmaid's Tale and won an Emmy for directing. Yeah. And that was her first pilot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to talk about the pitch process um, a little bit um, and, the, and the room where you're here and all that stuff. Um, Carrie, you were working at NBC and were in the room when Marta Kaufman and David Crane pitched Friends, which... Just first of all, tell me everything about that. Um, but, but specifically, does a show like that with six straight white leads, does that get made today? I mean, were there conversations at the time, you know, and this was the early 90s, about making that something more inclusive? Um, there actually were. There, first of all, it was awesome. <laughs> uh, it was one of the all-time great pitches um, that I've had the pleasure of being in, or the luck of being in. Um, and when we went to pilot, there were conversations in the casting room about um, casting colorblind, um, or casting specifically with four ethnicities. Um, and, um, and the creator's feeling strongly was we, they had done what we had asked them to do, which is authentically write who they knew. They were writing, it was not called friends then, but they were writing their friends, and, and the characters were very, very specifically people that they both knew well um, and had come up with. And um, they had specific ideas in their head of, of even, even when they were writing, uh, they actually had David Schwimmer in mind. They had, um, 
uh, Lisa Kudrow in mind. So they'd already cast a lot of it in their heads. Um, so the conversation was had, and at the time they, they made that strong point, and, um, and we as a network supported it. Um, I think now it might be a different conversation. I also think um, that was Gen X, and I think millennials and then subsequently Gen Z are far more diverse generations. I mean, the, Gen Z is the most diverse generation you know, in this country. Um, and, and so I think to honestly serve those generations, if that's who you're targeting as a programmer, um, it, it actually would, uh, it might feel a little tone deaf to not be more inclusive. You know, um, Tina Fey was, did an episode of The David Letterman Show on Netflix. Has anybody seen that episode? It's really brilliant. And, and for people who have aspirations about being in a creative capacity in this business, it, it was, it's kind of a tutorial in a really interesting way because she had deep faith in her own voice from the very first moment, which is really something to see. But she talks about when she first became the show or the head writer on SNL, that they have these very democratic table reads where everybody who comes with whatever they wrote gets to read it and then the head writer gets to decide whether it shows up or it doesn't show up. And she said before that, when it was all men, there were women who would bring sketches or you know those kind of goofy commercials, that sort of thing, um, up. And the, the head writers who were men just didn't get it. Like, they just didn't think it was funny. Not because it came from a woman, they just didn't have the background or experience to say, oh, I get, I get that joke. And so when she was in that chair, all of a sudden those pitches started to come. And she's like, no, no, you guys, this is funny. And so it just took the person who was the decision maker to get it to get more of that on screen. And I think it's, so, it's such an important point because I think we're very focused on the diversity in front of the camera, as we absolutely should be, but we also need to be focused on the diversity in the writer's room. Um, even if there isn't an enormous amount of diversity in the cast, just having different points of view present in the writer's room means that for those of us who are viewers, we're gonna have more points of entry into that show. And at the end of the day, what we all want is to make shows that a lot of people wanna watch. And if we have more people in the room writing it, we could have more people who connect to it on the other side of it. Um, and I think the same is true for the pitching process. The more people who are in the room who can connect to the people who are sitting there, uh, the more likely projects that come from people with different voices move forward. And that's something we can be in, in charge of and we can move forward with, which is populating our companies with people who are going to respond to those different things. I have kind of an interesting example of that. You're just, you just made me think of it. But um, recently, we just, had, we just aired uh, The Alienist. And one of the things that we wanted to do in the very first episode after we had shot the entire series was we realized that Dakota Fanning's character gets more in the show to do as the show goes on. And there's a lot, you know, as in every first episode, there's a lot of setup that has to happen. And we just wanted to make more of a point with her character that she wasn't this kind of stereotypical plucky woman in a man's world. And we were all talking about how to do that. And one of the, the women that we were working with, who was a writer, had this great idea about seeing her take off her corset and, and watch and see the marks on her body. And of course, instantly, I was like, yeah, like when you take off your Spanx. And all, and all the men were kind of like, I don't know. We think that's going to be real cuttable. Not in a shitty way, but just in a kind of like, I don't get that at don't know all. Because know what that feels like. At all. And it turned out to be, you know, Interestingly, like one of the most memorable moments of the pilot was seeing her, you know, have to have a woman take her out of her own clothes. Like that's how much yeah. a trap that wardrobe was at that time. And then to peel it away and see the marks on her body. And we've gotten so much positive feedback about how just in that one scene, it said so much about what her character had to go through. And that would not have made it into the show if it had not had, you know, a female point of view there. So just to kind of underscore in a specific way, I really agree with that. Um, you know, and, and in terms of like the on-screen and, and the pitch process and everything else, um, is there a mandate within your companies, uh, spoken or unspoken, to get more inclusive characters in these shows? <laughs> we have an unspoken mandate, for sure. Um, we, and it, because sometimes you do have to stomp your feet and say, try harder, uh, be better be more open, um, or it just doesn't happen. And so we shove hard um, on the issue of inclusivity, gender, race, class. Um, 
and I and I I think so. I'm, I'm proud of the results that we have. We have like um, uh, I think 60% of our um, episodic directors are female, LGBTQ, um, or people of color. Half of our series writers are women or people of color, and and every single one of our shows is at least has at least one female executive producer. And okay. that, I mean, that just didn't, it doesn't happen because we're nice people and we all care about doing the right thing. It happens because we, we shove. So I guess that's an unspoken mandate. I mean, being more on the studio side, you know, you don't have the same, it's a, it's a kind of different dynamic. But I will say that when we look at stories that move us, you know, I, right now I think I'm working with 90% of my content is female diverse content. Women showrunners, women narrative, um, not everything, but but certainly, you know, um, run, we're working with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Vicki Jones, they are the voice. You know, um, we're working with Helen Childress on a, another project. I mean, just women trying really hard to bring um, strong women, female voices. Kim Blackett, who we're working with, with Carrie, is a diverse female voice, and she's amazing. Um, so just really actively bringing in this, the story and the perspective to the marketplace. And I think that's what we can do as a studio. Yeah. Sarah? Yeah, and I would add, um, you know, to, to me and to us, it is a mandate. I mean, Kevin Riley, my boss, sent out a letter uh, that Brett Watts and I also authored and signed just saying, to each showrunner, this is what we expect. You must have diverse staffs across your crew, and um, we have to work hard with them to get that done, because here's the thing that people may assume. It's not what stops it, and I'd be curious to hear what you all think about this. It's not people trying to be exclusive. It is that there's a lot of money on the line, and time is a ticking. And so people instantly default to the people they know, the people that have delivered for them in the past, and that's when we try hard to support with new lists. And what's great is on our shows too, we've been working with um, a lot of women and people of color. And so now we even have the experience to say, oh no, this person is great. We just had them on this show. We feel really comfortable. So even if you don't, we can vet that and do that. And I think, you know, but it's interesting because I think it's, it's, it's always the way these things are when you get into the second and third wave. It's subtle. It's not this, well, I don't want to hire a woman because she's a moron. I mean, that's not really how it goes down. It's more of, well, we've looked at the list and all the good women, they're working right now, so I guess we don't have anybody. And so that's the moment where you've got to kind of keep pushing and be more inventive. And, um, and, and I do want to say one other thing, too, about the executive ranks, which we are working very hard on, and it is not easy, and it's subtle, and one of the things that we talk about is, okay, well, so what about our summer interns? Let's start at the bottom, build up through the top, at least make sure at that entry level, but even there, we run into obstacles because you realize, well, a lot of kids that have internships have the financial wherewithal to float themselves in a big city for a summer and are, you know, frankly, may have traveled more, feel like more capable of just plopping themselves down in a new city for three months. And so it's been very important to figure out, okay, so how do we support interns that don't have that financial backing or that life experience to feel comfortable doing this? And so you gotta get like into it, the nitty gritty, and really do it. And um, But I don't, like, it's very rewarding. It's not a pain, it's a joy, I think. It's one, I mean, I find it to be one of the privileges of doing my job is to finally be in a position where we can affect this. And I would just say, coming from a very small company, um, there are also moments where, you know, waiting for a program to be written and vetted and approved by, you know, it can take a long time. And the other side of it is, you don't have to wait for a program because, however, you're doing your jobs, you, if you have it in your head and you're focused on it and it's a priority for you, you don't really need a, you know, something printed on a piece of paper in your corporate handbook to tell you to do it. But we can just all be doing it now. And I also think from the studio side as well, you know, it, it, the one thing we do can really control too is specking scripts. Mm -hmm. And we can take chances on putting our money where our mouth is, which I think, you know, we've been trying to do so certainly um, 
and and giving women women and you know people who don't diverse voices people who don't um, necessarily always you know when they go out to pitch they may need to show something if we believe in it I think and E one has been so great about supporting. Um, that opportunity to give women that chance to put it on the page, and, and obviously diverse voices, and, and men too for that. You know, people who, who haven't had a voice necessarily. So I think that's another way, and we can do more certainly. So as you talk about the scripts and, and these pitches that you're hearing, are, have you noticed that that the, the types of material that you're getting is, is much more inclusive these days, or is it? I mean, you're not even having to ask for these scripts. Is it just coming in the door now? Listen, I'd like more scripts as an independent studio. I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a hard On thing. On front. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I do try, you know, but in terms of finding material, you know, actively I'm always personally reading and finding material and books that speak to what I think will be myself in the, um, in the market. And, um, and it's finding, you know, writers, even if they're not necessarily the biggest writer, but you know they have a voice. Um, to spec on that because that might be the best way of getting it across the, the line. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I think we can do more of that, yeah. certainly. Um, one thing I, I, I always wonder as a creative exec on, on shows, how do you determine the line between letting creators tell the stories that they want and the ones and stories that you believe are, 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 are the, like the right or wrong types of content to put out to viewers? Everyone's looking down here. <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's a, that's I mean, yeah, like that's you, it, that's that's, you, you, but you lose. Look, if if the, if you're off with a writer by this much, you know it's not a match. So then the dangerous zone is you want the show to be here, and the writer is here. And it has taken so much experience and hard knocks and misery for me to learn. It does not get there. Mm -hmm. And squinting your eyes and hoping and praying and massaging and supporting and talking, and talking. And talking <laughs> ad nauseum until you're blue in the face. And so I honestly think you can't make someone go to what you want. You have to be in sync. And I think that, and, but being honest about that, I think sometimes at a network, um, you know, or in any part of the business, because you want the business so much, you like the person, you believe in them, you want it to be right, but um, if it's not, it's just not. And so I don't, I don't really engage much in that anymore at all. Like it's either I see it, I understand how this person's going to deliver. Of course, bumps come along in their conversations, but if we're not really in sync from the beginning, it's kind of a fool's errand, in my opinion. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I think that's true. Um, and yet, I, I'm still learning. Like we, I, I just came from the, the panel on the bull type um, and uh, premiering next Tuesday on Freeform. Um, so, and we, we, we screened the season premiere of season two. And there's a storyline in that about, there's a, um, a, a gay couple, gay female couple, and it's about, um, it's about oral sex. I'll just be real candid. And the show is very forward and, um, and pushes a lot of boundaries and is very brave in its content. Um, and in negotiating sort of where we were going to go with that storyline with Amanda Lasher, there were moments where I felt myself, <laughs> as, a, as a prude person, getting kind of like, ooh, kind of, are you sure we want to go there? <laughs> and I had to let go of my own sort of prudishness about the subject matter and let it be what it needed to be. And, and a lot, all my, you know, all the young uh, creative executives that work for me were like, let her do it. Just get over yourself. Like, get out, get out of the way. Let this be what it is supposed to be. Um, and it was so gratifying sitting there in the screening watching it. It was really, really powerful. I don't want to give too much away about how the conversation and then how it was dramatized. And I'm so glad I got out of my own way and let it be what it was supposed to be. So. Well, what about the flip side of that? You know, I always go back to the, to the 100 and the barrier gaze trope. And if you're an executive on that show and you know that this is a stereotype and you know that you're gonna at least get some kind of backlash, I don't think anyone expected just how big that became. But if you see that come in in a script and, you're, and you know that this is gonna be problematic, what's your role? How do you, do you get involved? Do you stop it? Do you believe in the creator? Do you support them? 
How do you how do you handle that? Someone was coughing. I actually didn't hear what show you were mentioning. Uh, the one hundred. Oh. With the barrier, basically they they had a story where that it perpetrated the, the barrier gaze trope, and it wound up becoming one of the, uh, it, like the poster child for what not to do. Um, so if you're as as the executives overseeing these shows, and you know when you see a storyline like that coming through, what's your involvement? Do you say like, oh, yeah, we'll do it anyway, or do we put the brakes on? I mean, what, where's that conversation? We have um, a storyline in the this season of Claws that um, involves one of the characters getting an abortion, and I'm incredibly pro-choice and vocally and. It's where I spend my time and energy. But I really, in a show that has a lot of comedy, for me it wasn't about whether or not to do the storyline, it was about how, how many jokes we could have around it and then where the balance of the real of that would be. Because it is gonna go out in the world and it's gonna have you know people making comments about that and so, it was interesting to have that, and I think I was a little nervous about having the jokes, um, because I'm so protective. I don't want the backlash against it, um, and for it to be treated seriously, but I realized as we're advancing in culture and people are talking about this in an open way, and it doesn't have to be shameful that we should find you know, the balance of humor and all of it, and we'll see. It's, on, it's the second episode, so you know, that's gonna be on in a week and a half, and we'll see what happens. But I think they did a great job of, of tackling it and toggling back and forth between the seriousness of it and the humor. But you know, I'm a little nervous, I won't lie. I will say, I think that's one of the gifts of this moment in time, in that before you had to really be talking about how you personally were feeling about a subject matter, whereas now you can say, I really feel like at this moment where we are in media and in the social conversation, this is gonna land badly. Um, and I think there's a lot of fear around doing something that lands badly. So in some way, this moment gives us more backup than we've ever had before. People are aware of not wanting to go down that path. Um, to that note, I mean, do you feel like these shows, the shows that you're making, um, are having a larger influence on the perception of other cultures and ethnicities and sexualities? I hope so. I mean, I hope we, in the right way. You know, I think when we look at, when I look at certain narrative, I think we want to, push our boundaries. We want to start to, in particular, um, in talking about sharp objects, and I was reading, you know, obviously it launched here, which is very, very exciting for us. And um, Marty Noxon said something on her panel that really, really struck home for me, which is that finally we're in a place where women don't have to be likable. We don't have to be smiling, you know? And so um, I think we're finally at this new frontier in narrative, in particular for women and for diverse voices. Look at Black Panther, although different, but I felt that was like a real push forward that young African-American men could see themselves reflected as superheroes. Yeah. And I get goosebumps every time I say that. It's yeah. so fantastic. Yeah. And so, um, and Wonder Woman. I mean, I was like, I could feel my heart pounding and like, how old am I? <laughs> you know, when I was in that movie, just to see a woman being in action. You know, whether, whether you, you know, so I think we are in these ways starting to shift the landscape. And I think that's so exciting because when I thought about this panel, what got me so happy to talk about this is I think I thought back to what influenced me um, and why is TV important. And for me, it was watching Murphy Brown. And I saw a woman defined by what she did. I was like 10 maybe at the time, and I would just remember thinking, wow, that, that's like amazing. Like she is defined by a job, and I became a journalist. I went into journalism because of it, and I saw Christiana Amanpour, although different. But you know, you know, I saw these things, these women, these very strong women, and I think you know, we're at another frontier right now to make it much more inclusive for other people to see themselves reflected, and that's why it's so important, because it will impact their lives. It impacted my life. Like, Murphy Brown impacted my life, hands down. Yeah, and coming back now for another generation, and I mean, I think everyone in this room can probably, hopefully, at this point, pinpoint the, that moment when, like for me, the first time that I saw a version of myself on TV was when Ellen came out, and that was, what, 25 years ago, and ABC and Disney lost advertisers for that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and now we're, we're at, a, at a place where a show like Pose on FX, which just launched last weekend, is, gets a green light. 
not just a green light, but a green light at a and big a big audience. audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think art has always been at the forefront of changing the way people feel about things from the beginning of time. There were, like, artists have always been at the forefront of change, and then they kind of bring us all along with them. And I see it most um, clearly in the generations between my daughters and myself and my mom. And my mom really marvels at the things that my daughters barely notice, like the things that she would think were quite scandalous. Um, she'll remark all the time in a kind of wondrous way that they don't find those things scandalous at all. Yeah. And, um, and as I watch them watch things that move them um, and I see them connect to stories that may not be their own, I, I see it most clearly in those moments. Um, and we're all moms and we all consume this stuff with our kids and I think we all see them moved by things. And so if that's being replicated everywhere, then it must be. I mean, looking back on your on your careers, um, what was the moment that uh, surprised you the most that you never thought you would see on TV when it comes to inclusion? That's such a great question. I'll say, I mean, one of the reasons I came to work at this company, it was ABC Family at the time, um, was uh, I was watching The Fosters with my kids. And... Um, it's interesting, I had a production company at the time. My partner um, uh, was a gay man in an interracial marriage. Um, and we had gone around pitching a show to all the broadcast networks about their relationship. And we couldn't sell it. <laughs> and I kept saying, has anybody seen The Fosters? Like, do you know what's going on over at ABC Family? They're doing, you know, groundbreaking work over there. Um, they were the, you know, I think it's actually now in the Smithsonian, or the first yeah. show to show, um, uh, a lesbian couple, interracial lesbian couple, get married on television, and um, and I, it really it moved me enough to I wanted to go take this job. I thought I want to I could take a break from broadcast television and go someplace where people are doing brave things, and no one's burning down the building. <laughs> it sounded self-serving, but it's really true. It was yeah. really like inspiring. Um, you know, it's I hadn't thought about that, but it's funny. I. Um, have spent a long time working with this casting director, Linda Lowy, who has been Shonda's partner uh, for many, many years since Grey's Anatomy, and she cast Friday Night Lights for me, and now is a casting consultant, and many other things, and now is a casting consultant for me at TNT. But I remember watching that first episode of Grey's, and I thought, oh my God, there's not one, but two, but three black doctors, and Sandra Oh is a doctor, and you know we have four people of color outnumbering the white doctors on this show and not a single thing and they're all the senior doctors they're all the boss doctors and i was like wow that is without a comment without a big political statement about it it just was and i remember thinking oh something's happening this is this is a thing and it took a while for it to become a thing they were ahead of the curve with that and kind of that sat out there by itself for a long time i mean obviously shonda and linda did a lot more colorblind casting or intentionally diverse casting um, as they did their work at abc together but i was i was knocked out by that at the time i remember it Hmm. Um, it's, so it was very interesting when I came here, I, I was working for Amazon and I came just as Transparent was coming and it was, um, it was a pilot and I remember watching this pilot and going, that is like nothing I've seen before and this is either going to be every, you know, I have no idea what this is going to do and to watch the power of the Feffermans <laughs> transform I know it's kind of, you know, it's had its own story, certainly. But at that moment, when it came out, and to see a, a transgender person take, basically transform a studio because of the power of that story, mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like I mean, it was just amazing to behold. It was yeah. quite powerful. And I don't think without the success, you know, the barriers that, that Transparent broke, you would get a show like Pose on today. Mm -mm. Um, we're going to actually open it up to questions from the audience uh, here in the front. Thank you. Um, I'm Kimberly. I'm, I'm actually a casting associate. And I love what's been going on 
the, with diversity, and um, I'm so glad to be a part of it. Um, but one thing continually seems to be missing, in my opinion, is body diversity, particularly in women. Um, and <laughs> um, I, I, like, I was trying to think of anybody <laughs> I could remember that was like a little bit overweight as a woman on a show, and and I. When I think of the Mike and Molly and the woman on This Is Us, both shows began with them in an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, and it doesn't need to, what if someone could just be overweight and not having a crisis about it? They're just a person. <laughs> and um, So anyway, that, that would be something I would want to see if something could move, and, and what is your opinion on that? No, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, thank you. We have a lot of work to do on a lot of fronts, but I, I, that idea that it has to be the, th the biggest struggle in that person's life um, doesn't have to be the only woman that you see like that, or man that you see like that, and so we should all be working on it. We talk a lot, a lot, a lot about it, um, and, and are working hard on it. Elizabeth Boykevich, our head of, of casting and talent, has made it a, a, you know, a personal mission of hers. Um, I think Marty's attacking it in Dietland. Again, that shows about you know um, body dysmorphia in, in many ways. And so it's, yes, well, let's get to the point where we, I can't wait for that show, and I'm so excited <laughs> to, to watch it. But um, um, it doesn't have to be what the show is about. It's just, um, yeah, we're more representative of what people actually look like in America. Yeah, I mean, body image is one of the most sensitive and important topics in particular for young women. Mm -hmm. And to make, again, going back to what this entire panel is about, it's about seeing yourself. And if you don't see, if, and not just seeing yourself, but other people seeing people like you. And for young people and older people in particular, we, you're right, like we have to do more because you don't want it to feel like a stigma and yet when you don't see someone reflected on your screens, it does become a stigma, doesn't it? So we have to do better at that, for sure. Yeah. Uh, is there another question? Yeah, in the back. Hi, I was just wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about the flip side of culture, like maybe the negative aspects, like you have the Parkland shooting and then Heathers gets pulled from television, yet 13 Reasons Why has violence and other things like that, that's still, it's on Netflix, other things get pulled. So from your respective positions, how do you deal with negative things in culture that are happening that you do need to address to represent society, but may not be a positive thing? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because by the very nature of putting something like that into a television show, you know, we're not trying to do a PBS documentary on the subject, so then it gets icky almost immediately because you're like, okay, well, so how can this have some story value? What is a character's connection to it? And, and that, by definition, is how do you make this entertaining? I mean, that's a very broad use of that word. But so it's not easy. And it's also not easy for it to feel cheap really quickly. Like, well, let's hit that button because we know that that will get a certain response. Or, and, and even if that's not your intention, you just become hypersensitive to it. Um, and so I think that... To me, what's more interesting, I, you know, obviously the delay in when we make something and when it airs prevents us from being, you know, very specifically topical. So what I think we've tried to do is, you know, talk about or think about issues that have deeper, you know, roots that we feel like will not necessarily feel faddish or too on the nose, for example. Um, and that's just for feeling fresh when it airs. But I think it's very important to continue to dive in and try and speak to those issues. And the interesting thing that we talk about right now is people really don't want frivolous content. I think that given the world that we're living in, they want a little bit more meat on the bone, so to speak. And so, um, in fact, I'm kind of always looking for the opposite, which is, this seems really fun, but what's the bigger thing that it's saying? We don't have to hit you over the head like an after-school special every episode, but you know what's moving you? Because I think otherwise it's disposable in this era. Um, and you would think that people wanted 
escapism right now, but I just have not found that to be the case. I think they want to laugh. I think that you don't have to kind of drop them down a well of terror and sadness and leave them there. I think you kind of, you know, but like for a long time, well, but for a long time, you know, premium drama, I mean, it's one of the things that we work on a lot at TNT because that landscape, when I started three years ago, to be considered serious and, and premium, you had to be pretty dark. I mean, it was really um, almost without exception. And so we're constantly trying to figure out how can we be smart and provocative and contemporary, but also entertaining, which I do not feel like is a bad word and I think, frankly, creates space for us in the market. So I think I kind of answered your question. Yeah, yeah and there's a larger responsibility to tell these stories well, responsibly, you know, like a show like Heather's, you know, having seen part of it and knowing what's in some of these episodes, how do you have a character walking down a hallway playing a first person shooter when the character is envisioning shooting up his school amid a climate where kids are shooting up their schools? Yeah, I, I once had a show that I worked on and the, sick, the first episode of the second season was a school shooting. Um, and it was, I think it happened I can't, so sad to say, I can't remember which school shooting at the time it was happening around, which is something to be said. And, um, you know, we, we were fretting at that time because we'd shot it, it was beautiful, and this director named Pods, this French-Canadian director, had just done this magnificent piece. And because it was, what we focused on, it wasn't about the sensationalizing of it, it was about the emotional impact on the first responders of having to walk into these situations and the devastation it does to them every time they have to do it. And ultimately, the network chose to air it. Um, but I think it's about context. And if, you're, if you feel like you're making it a sense, if you're sensationalizing it, that's, a, that's one thing. But if you're trying to create an emotional impact so people can feel and actually start to absorb what that is to have a school shooting. I have two sons. I can't. You know, it makes me cringe almost every day right now. But I think, um, you know, you want people to feel things. And I think it's important for people to feel things. But there is that difference, certainly. When I was at Legendary, I made the Looming Tower. We made the Looming Tower there. And that was obviously about 9-11, um, which was an incredibly scary topic uh, to, to touch. Um, but we had a really brilliant writer in Danny Futterman who had a kind of a... Um, a litmus test for the choices that he made. And, um, and the way he would articulate that was um, he wanted to make sure that whatever we did or didn't do, that we didn't make anything more painful for the families of, of people who were lost that day. And so that was how he chose at every moment to proceed, which I thought was so brilliant. Um, I think sometimes you need some space from something to be able to do something about it. I don't mean do something about it in terms of taking action. I mean in terms of creating content about it. Sometimes you need some space from something to be able to see it clearly. Um, I would love to believe that this is um, that these are instances that are peaking at the moment and that maybe it won't always be that way and maybe there won't be as many of these and maybe we will get some distance from them and be able to talk about them in a different way. Um, I don't know that's that, that that's the case, but I would I would I would like that to be the case. Um, I think uh, if you take what Danny, if you take that way that Danny was thinking about things, and you're looking at projects like these, and you think to yourself, how will these families respond to this episode? If it feels that it might be more painful, I think people rightly are going to choose not to do it at the moment. But it's not because they don't feel that the subject is important. It's that they feel like. Um, the respect is more important than, than making that at that one moment. Do we have another question? Here, in front. As there is this positive shift in the media and you guys are looking for new voices, how does a new voice get heard? Does she have to attach herself to a man? Does she have to have a lit agent? Like I recently had a very interesting experience where I had to attach myself to a man go out and pitch with four men about women empowerment, and I was pitching to all men. And back to the Tina Fey point, how are they gonna get it if they're the decision makers? How do you get heard as a new voice? Because I'm the one that's hearing it. That's a terrible it. story. I mean, that's like, honestly, like it means there just need to be 
<clears throat> you need to go where the women are. I mean, thankfully, <laughs> there are a lot of women now sitting in our chairs. It may not at the president level, but at this level, there are a lot of places where you're walking in, talking to a woman. So I think it's a little bit about know your audience. But, you know, I actually... It's interesting pitching something versus getting staffed, and I know those are two different issues, but as it stands right now, I hear a lot of men saying, I can't get a job because everyone is coming saying, I have to make sure that I have a balanced staff, and it's a little bit like Crimea River, but you know, I, um, I, I think that on the pitching front, it's interesting, and I, and I take your point about that, but I think like anything, you know, you always have to pick your home. I mean, you always have to see what people are looking for or thinking about, and I, and I truly believe right now, there are a lot of places in town where you wouldn't have to walk in and be kind of, you know, with your male bodyguard crew, and I think it's up to you to, you know, kind of select into those. I mean, you get a much more friendly audience, but what, I can tell you when I say something, where are you gonna say? No, it's just it, that that wasn't an opportunity at the time. This was when the Harvey Weinstein thing was happening. So in order to, as a new voice, I didn't know how to get my stuff read. I didn't know how to get into a meeting. And so I tried to attach myself to women because it's about women. Yeah. And for some reason, these four very powerful men wanted to tell my story. But yet I was going in and I was pitching to all men, with men. And I remember in the pitch meeting saying the word pussy, and I thought these old men were gonna nearly like drop over and die, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like I thought I gave them a heart attack. Yeah. And so they just didn't get it. So basically, like I'm sure a lot of people are trying to break into the industry. How do they get their stuff read? How do they send it in? How do they submit it and get heard? Well, I, I back up what Sarah says. I think do I think doing your not that you didn't do your homework, but but you know, um, you can do some homework and figure out where are the female friendly buyers. Um, we have people walk into Freeform, and our honor development team. We have we have one guy, and we call him the unicorn. Because it's all women. <laughs> it's all female buyers um, on our development team and Nate. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, we are a, our audience is 70% female. We are decidedly sort of about and for women. And so we would be wrong to have a, you know, a crew of male buyers. Um, uh, I, I think you know, talk to your representation if you have representation and really find the places that are going to value a real story about, um, you know, that comes from a woman. I think it's almost two different questions. One question is how do you break in as a person without mm -hmm. connections? And the other is how do you equip yourself with the right partners so that you have a better shot at selling what you're trying to sell? Um, in terms of breaking into the industry, we were talking about it before, um, the internet is an amazing place and it allows you to write what you want to write and shoot what you want to shoot and publish it. And people do pay attention. And, um, and that's something that was never a possibility before. Um, so that is, a, it's an amazing tool that you have in front of you. And it allows um, really special material to get some attention. Um, and then there's a million other things on that front. Uh, on, the, on the choosing your partners well, I also feel like there's a way to have the conversation, again, to make it very clear that what you're saying is, if I'm going out with a female-centric project and it's all men, and we are sitting on the couch and the only person here who has no experience is the only woman, I don't think that's the best way to sell it. Um, and that covers, nobody can, can disagree with you on that front. And again, going into just the breaking into, how do I break in? Um, I always say, you know, every, again, everything is, to, to Lauren's point, everything's on the internet. Like our names, email addresses. But I also feel like there are junior people at all of these companies that you probably might want to work with, and this is for anyone here who's interested. And I always think, try and find that manager, you know, not like the manager of development, because they, they want to find the goal, the goal. They want to find that thing in the rough. And they, they, have, they are there to take those meetings. They are there to work with people who don't have that experience. Reach out. You can find their names and their email address and say, can I take you for a cup of coffee? Yeah, and same with the assistants who all want to be That's in, right. in your roles eventually. Yeah, I mean, Steve, Stephen Levinson, I'll never forget, Stephen Levinson was working, I think, on Ari Emanuel's desk, and that's how he met Mark Wahlberg. Like, I feel like it was as an assistant, and they, 
they, they rose where they rose. I just, it always stuck with me that he, they kind of came up together. And so I think getting to find, find other people who are entry level and work together, and try, you know, that's a good way of starting. Well, sadly, that is all the time that we have. Um, thank you to my lovely panelists. Thank you guys for coming. And thank you, ATX. Thank you all for tuning in to this live release of our ATX Festival panel. Please come back and listen to the variety of topics coming your way, from writers' rooms to reunions to industry insider issues. This podcast was made possible by our partners, Matica Productions and the Forever Dog Network. For more information on us and our podcast projects, please visit atxfestival.com and atvxp.com slash podcast. Next year's festival dates are June 6th through 9th, 2019, and passes are available now.